Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Good morning. I'm going to read Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Awesome. Thanks, Maylee. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good morning. Today, like Brad said, we're starting a new series, our second annual Summer in the Psalms. Um, but before we get into that, I want to take just a few minutes to talk about dads. So last week was Father's Day, so I feel like this is a natural time to reflect on what it means to be a good dad. And where better to discover, to learn what it means to be a good dad than children's television, right? That's probably the best place to look. Uh, My family and I, we recently discovered this show called Bluey. Has anyone heard of this show? We got a few Bluey fans. We love Bluey, okay? For those of you that don't know about Bluey, Bluey is a show about a family of dogs. Uh, It's a a mom, a dad, and two little girls. So, and one of the things I love most about this show is the way it portrays the dad. And as you can see in the picture, they think their dad is awesome. Um, And the reason why is because this dad, he loves his kids. He loves spending time with his kids, really no matter what it is, whatever silly thing they're doing, Whatever game they're playing, he jumps in 100%, 100% committed, whatever it is. And as I'm watching this guy, this cartoon dad, uh, I'm thinking to myself, like, how can he do that? Like, doesn't he have actual responsibilities? Like, like a job? Do you not have a job? How do you get to just play all day? Uh, And then I have to remind myself that this is a TV show. But then also, Bluey is kind of different. Each episode is only eight minutes. So this is eight minutes that he's taking out of his day to be present with his kids. And when I think of it in those terms, just eight minutes, eight minutes, I'm like, okay, maybe, I think maybe I could do that. Maybe I could step away for eight minutes and be fully present with my kids. And even though eight minutes is a short time, even eight minutes is actually hard. I don't know if you've ever tried this. To be fully present with someone for eight minutes is a challenge. But if you've seen Bluey, if you've seen this dad do it, 
Maybe you're like me and it's like, man, that's something I want to do. I want to do that. Because there's no better gift a dad can give his kids than to be present with them. And research actually supports this idea that a good dad is present with his kids. There's a book called The Price of Privilege by Madeline Levine. You can see it up here. And in this book, it says, our children benefit more from our ability to be present than they do from anything else. It goes on and says, being free enough from your own preoccupations to be attuned to the needs of your particular child is one of the greatest contributions to their healthy development you can make. Being free enough from your own preoccupations. And I think about that and I'm like, man, that's not easy. There's always, I always have things on my mind. There's always worries, concerns, things on my mind. And, and even when I'm with my kids, a lot of times my mind is somewhere else. But I think of Bluey, I, I hear this research, and I think if I can do it, if I can set those things aside, set those preoccupations aside, again, there's nothing better I could do for my kids. So what we learn from Bluey and what we learn from the price of privilege is that a good dad is present. And when we look at Scripture, we see a heavenly father who is always present. From the very first four words of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God. He is active, involved, present on every page of Scripture. We see it in the books of the law. In Deuteronomy 31.6, it says, be strong and courageous, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And we see it in the prophets. In Isaiah 41.10, it says, fear not, for I am with you. And we see it in the Psalms. A psalm we sing a lot. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And in Psalm 46.1, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So what we see in Scripture is our Heavenly Father, our really good dad, is very present. He is with us. He is with me, always completely with me, giving me his undivided attention at all times. That's my good dad. But as much as I know that that is true, as much as I know that he's with me, it doesn't always feel that way. About two years ago, I started this journey of of learning what it really means to spend time with my heavenly Father, what that could look like. And, it's, and one of the first things I came across was this book. It's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Um, and in the first chapter of his book, I feel like he really put his finger on exactly what I was feeling at the time and still feel at times. And so what he does is he sets up this scene as if, as if they, the reader of the book is meeting with a prayer therapist. Okay, so we're just going to walk through this scene together. So it starts off with the therapist asks a question. The therapist says, what does it mean that you are a son or daughter of God? You reply that it means that you have complete access to your heavenly father through Jesus. You have true intimacy based not on how good you are, 
but on the goodness of Jesus. And the therapist smiles and says, that's right. You, you've done a wonderful job describing the doctrine of sonship. Now, tell me, what is it like for you to be with your father? What is it like to talk with him? And you cautiously tell the therapist how difficult it is for you to be in your father's presence, even for a couple of minutes. Your mind wanders. You aren't sure what to say. You wonder, does prayer make any difference? Is God even there? Then you feel guilty for your doubts and just give up. Your therapist tells you what you already know. Your relationship with your father is dysfunctional. You talk as if you have an intimate relationship, but you don't. Theoretically, it is close. Practically, it is distant. You need help. And that's exactly where I was two years ago. I needed help. And thankfully, I, I feel like God has helped me grow in this process. I feel much closer to my father now than I did then. But even still today, I need help. Because as much as I know my father is with me, it doesn't always feel like it. As much as I know it's good for me to spend time with him, a lot of times I don't know what to pray, how to pray. A lot of times I don't even feel like praying. But today, there's good news. And that good news is the Psalms are here to help us. Earlier we read two Psalms, two of many that tell us God is with us. And the Psalms, the Psalms don't just tell us that God is with us. The Psalms give us a way to be with him. They give us a way to interact, a way to spend time with our Father. The Psalms are a great way to get to know our really good dad. And so, this week and over the next four weeks, we are going to spend time in the Psalms getting to know our Heavenly Father. So what we'll do is each week we'll read a psalm and we'll get to observe what it looks like for someone to just talk openly and honestly with their Heavenly Father. And what we'll do, we'll walk through it together, interact with it, pray it, and then throughout the week we will be invited, all of us, to use this psalm as a tool to help us spend time with our Father. And today we will be in Psalm 16. And the reason we're starting in Psalm 16 is because it gets at this fundamental problem of I know that God is with me, I can sing that God is with me, but sometimes I feel alone. Sometimes I feel distant. What do I do? What can I do? Well, what we can do is we can pray Psalm 16. So before we get into it, uh, to help us wrap our minds around Psalm 16, we're going to divide it into four sections, four kind of manageable pieces. Uh, and we'll see that in verses 1 and 2, David starts with a plea. And then in verses 3 and 4, he notices a pattern. And in verses 5 through 7, he makes a proclamation. And then finally, in verses 8 through 11, he paints a picture so we'll walk through these four sections together. So section one is this plea. In verses one and two, it says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And we don't know the exact context of this psalm, um, but most scholars agree that it's a time of trouble. For David, 
where he's likely on the run, likely being chased. People are trying to search him down, hunt him down to kill him. That is likely what is going on. And in the midst of this, he cries out, preserve me, O God. In the NIV, it's translated, keep me safe. So David starts this song with a cry of protection. And then he says, for in you I take refuge. So refuge, it's not a word I say a lot. I think we all know what that means. You know, it's a place of safety or protection, uh, like a shelter or a shield. But the term that for me resonates more, makes more sense to me, is maybe the term home. David is on the run. He doesn't have a home. And what he says is, Lord, you are my home. I make my home in you. And then David goes further and he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And that that first line there might sound a little strange. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Um, But the two times we see Lord are actually two very different words in the original language. So we'll look at that for just a second. When we see the word Lord in all caps in our Bibles, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh which is translated I am or, or he is. And, and that word Yahweh is just packed with meaning. We could spend five weeks talking about that one word. But for today, it at least means a statement of presence. I am with you. He is with us. And so what David is saying is you are the I am. You are the one who is always present, completely present. You are with me right here, right now. And I say to the I am, you are my Lord. And Lord here, he's saying, you are my God. You are my king. You are in charge. I'm putting my trust completely in you. And what I want us to notice about this plea is that it is a bold plea. Because David is living in the midst of turmoil. Again, it's chaos and confusion all around him. He's on the run. He doesn't have a home. People are hunting him down. It seems like everything that could go wrong is going wrong. And I'm thinking if I'm in David's shoes, it would be very easy for me to feel defeated, alone, done. But David is not defeated. Because David does not have a horizontal view of the world. So what do I mean by that? When I say a horizontal view, what I mean is a horizontal view of life looks at the world as if the world is all there is. And so if I'm looking at the world as if the world is all all there is, my focus is here. My joy, my mood is dependent on how things are going out here. Things are good, I'm feeling good. Things are not so good, I'm not feeling good. Um, Someone cuts me off in traffic, I'm upset. Someone says something that hurts my feelings, someone wrongs me, I'm offended. And that actually seems like a pretty normal, natural way to see the world. In fact, many people spend their whole life seeing the world that way. But David invites us to see things a different way. Way. David invites us to a vertical view of life. So what do I mean by that? A vertical view of life looks to God. 
The focus is here. My joy and my mood are dependent on my father. So if, if things aren't going well here, I can talk to him about it. We, we can sort things out. I can remember, man, I have a father in heaven. He exists. He's real. He's good. He loves me. And so whatever go, is going on out here is actually part of his story. He's working. Even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. God, my Father, is involved in my life. And as I see things that way, my circumstances may or may not change. They, who knows? But I start to change. So a little over a year ago, um, a pastor of a church I used to go to in Columbia started a podcast. Um, and the name of that podcast is A Bigger Life. And what he typically does on that podcast is actually what we're going to be doing for the next five weeks. He takes a portion of scripture, usually a psalm, and he kind of unpacks it, talks through it, and then he prays it. And that, that's basically the podcast. And uh, a few weeks ago, he talked about this logo for the podcast right here, uh, about really a, how it's a good picture of what he's trying to do on the podcast and what we're, we're going to try to do these next few weeks. Uh, and the idea is the more we see things vertically. The more we are looking up, the more we see God as real and present in our lives, the more we start to see things the way he does. And the more we do that, the more we see things the way he sees things, the less we look out here, the less we look to the world to meet our needs. We're less needy, we're less grouchy, we're less weighed down by what's going on, and we start to live a bigger life. And so that's what David is doing. David is living a bigger life. And so he starts with this plea, and then David notices a pattern in verses 3 and 4. So let's look at it in verse 3. He says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. So what is he saying here? What does that mean? He says, I love to be with people who are looking up. I love to be with people whose focus is vertical on God because they are the excellent ones. They get it. It's not that their life is any easier, that they, they face any less hardship, but somehow in the midst of it, they live these fuller, richer, bigger lives. And then David notices that the reverse is also true. In verse 4 it says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He says the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. What he notices is there are people that just never look up. They're stuck here in the horizontal looking for good, lo looking for fulfillment out here. They want to address horizontal problems with horizontal solutions and the result is sorrow, a multiplication of sorrows. And as he notices this, it reminds me uh, of Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, God looks down and he sees his people, the people of Israel, and they are running after other gods. Their eyes are just all right here. And this is what he says in, in verse 9. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
And what he's saying is, is literally, I mean, these are people with a stiff neck. All they see is right here. They are refusing to look up to me, and it's sad. It's breaking his heart because when they do that, when they refuse to look up, they are left with sorrow. And so after David observes this, he says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Not, not something we say a lot. What is he talking about? Um, what do you mean? He's talking about these other gods. He's saying, I will not make a sacrifice to another God. I'm not going to serve another God. I'm not even going to take their name on my lips. I want no part of it. I don't want to be a stiff-necked person. I want to be a saint. I want to live vertically. I want to live a bigger life. So I really like, um, in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, uh, paraphrase, the message, I really like the way he paraphrases the first few verses of Romans 12, and I think it's actually a really good, practical way uh, to, to walk through what this looks like in everyday life, to, to live a vertical life and not a horizontal life. And this is what it says in, in Romans 12. Uh, Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Just take everything you do and lift it up this way. And he says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. What he's saying is it, it's so easy. We, this is where we live. We live in the horizontal. So it's so easy to just, to, to just stay there without even thinking. It's our default to, to think the way our culture thinks because we are swimming in a culture that says, take what you can while you can right here, right now. Do what makes you happy. You do you. If someone offends you, how dare they? Who gave them the right? Our culture looks for joy and fulfillment here. So he says, instead, fix your attention on God, and you'll be changed from the inside out. Focus on him, and you'll be transformed. How does that work? Well, he says, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you. And he develops well-formed maturity in you. What he's pointing out is our culture is not going to invite us into a bigger life. It tells us, it tells me to focus on me and my comfort, take care of myself here and now. But our Heavenly Father invites us to spend time with him and he'll bring out the best of us. And that's the life David wanted to live. After looking around at, at the sorrows of the stiff-necked and the joy of the saints, he's like, I, I want this. And so he, it bursts out in this proclamation in verses 5 through 7. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Again, words we don't use all the time. He is my chosen portion and my cup. And so just to help us wrap our minds around this, um, I want us just to imagine you're going on a trip. Okay, you're going to take a trip. If you're going on a trip, there are basically two categories that you have to think about. Um, you have to think about the stuff you're going to need, your supplies, provisions. Um, and then the other category is the stuff you're going to do. You know, what's the plan? Where are we going? What are we doing? And so Lightco, 
Any light coers out here? Yeah, all right. So light co, light co's are junior high, high school ministry. They went on a float trip uh, yesterday. And so before they went on that trip, they have to think a little bit, you know, what are we going to need? What's the stuff we're going to need? Uh, well, uh, we're going to need some food. Uh, we're going to need a place to stay. Uh, the weather is unpredictable, so we might need a little patience. Uh, might need some wisdom, some good attitudes on this trip. <laughs> and then they got to think, you know, uh, what's the stuff we're going to do? Well, we're going to get in a car. We're going to drive there. We're going we're gonna to get settled. We're going to sleep, hopefully, even though it's raining on us all night long. We're going to try to do that. Um, and then we're going to go on this float trip. So there's the stuff they need and the stuff they're going to do. And so when David says, my portion and my cup, he is referring to these two things. He's saying, God, you are my portion. Everything I need comes from you. And he's saying, Lord, you are my cup. Everything I do comes from you. And I think it's interesting, these terms, portion and cup, I think they are intentionally like small or defined, uh, contained, um, because he's saying, man, for today, this moment, the next eight minutes, just for, just for this moment, you are my portion and my cup. Everything I need right now. So he's saying, in other words, he's saying, for today, I want what you want. Nothing more, nothing less. For this moment, I want what you want. And then he says, you hold my lot. And so my lot, if my portion and my cup are contained, and he's saying, you know, this, this is for this moment, for today. When he says my lot, he's saying from this moment forward into the future. He's saying, you hold my future. Today, you are my portion and my cup. And every day from this moment on, you are my portion and you are my cup. For me, looking horizontally, I think a lot, I worry a lot about my lot, my, my future. You know, uh, what, what, um, what's my job situation going to be? How, how's my family uh, doing? Um, what's our financial situation? These, these normal concerns. Am I saving enough for retirement? Just all, all these thoughts about my future. But when I look vertically, I can remember that he holds my lot. I have nothing to worry about when I remember that he holds my lot. And I can remember that what he has for me is bigger than anything I see around me. He always has more for me. And then when I understand that, I can say like David, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. My future is bright because he holds my future. And finally, David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. He's like, you are my portion and my cup. I trust in you. And not only that, you constantly are teaching me to trust in you. Me trusting in you is something that you are helping me do. And so finally, we get to this last section where David paints a picture in, in verses 8 through 11. 
And as we get into this, what David's going to do is actually paint a picture of his, his lot, his future from this day forward. And I, and I just invite you to kind of think about that uh, for all of us. Like, what does, what does your future hold? Just imagine maybe the next five years. What will life look like in five years? What will life look like in ten years? And we're all in a little bit different stage of life, you know. Maybe that's like, man, what would it be like to graduate? Uh, what will life be like when I start a family? What will it be like when I retire? So, so those kind of thoughts, because that's what David's doing here. He's imagining his future. So I would invite all of us just to imagine with him. Try to picture uh, this, this, uh, this future that he's painting here. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. So again, just like the rest of the psalm, David is looking vertically. He's not actually seeing a future here. He's seeing a future here. He says, I've set the Lord always before me. And he's just imagining that. And then he says, you know, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So he imagines, you know, I've set the Lord always before me. And he's like, man, that's not even good enough. He's actually at my right hand. He's right next to me. And the right hand, I mean, it, can, it conveys this closeness, but it's also a symbol of strength and honor. He's like, all my strength, any strength I have, any, anything I do, I mean, that's, that's him. That, that's the Lord working in me. So he's like, I've set the Lord always before me. You know what? Beyond that, he's at my right hand. And I can just see him come to the logical conclusion, I shall not be shaken. And then he says, I, I can almost just imagine him as he's doing that. A smile comes on his face. And he's like, therefore my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Because you're with me. I've set the Lord always before me. You're at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. And he goes on. He says, for you will not abandon me to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. It's like as he imagines his future, he's like, my future is just always with my Father. It's always with the Lord. He's at my right hand. So even when I die, I know you will not abandon me. I, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I know that you won't abandon me. My future, even when I die, is going to be spent with you. And so he concludes this psalm in celebration. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's like he's summing it up again. During this life, while I'm alive... You make known to me the path of life. You're at my right hand every step of the way, and in your presence there's fullness of joy. And then when I die, it's even better because it's not that you're at my right hand anymore. I get to be at your right hand. This side of heaven, I mean, I get to experience the joy of your presence, but it's, 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 it's going to be so much better when I'm actually at your right hand and I actually experience the fullness of your glory. And not only do I get to experience it once, I get to experience it forevermore. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David has a beautiful picture of his future. And again, we have to remember, his life 
horizontally. It's not going very well. He's on the run. There's craziness and confusion. But in the midst of that, David has clarity because he is looking to his father. I like to imagine that David wrote this psalm and he's on the run. And every night before he goes to bed, he sings this like two or three times. And his heart just fills up with the truth. And then he like just falls back and onto whatever you sleep on 3,000 years ago, his little bed of whatever, he falls back and he has the best night of sleep. And what's good news for us is what's true for David, what was true for David is true for us today. We can use David's picture of his future and we can imagine our future. And what's even crazier is that in some ways, even though David wrote this song, we actually have a clearer picture of it than David did. And the reason for that is because we know Jesus. This is a psalm of Jesus, actually. More than anything, this is a picture of Jesus. So earlier, we talked about how in the law and the prophets and the psalms, they all tell us that God is with us. The other thing that's true about the law and the prophets and the Psalms is that they all point us to Jesus. And that's, Jesus said it in, in Luke 24, 44. He said, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And this Psalm is no exception. And Peter, Peter knew this. And so in Acts chapter 2, 22 through 32, it's the first sermon Peter preaches that we have recorded in the book of Acts. And what does he do? What is he going to preach to the people? He's preaching this psalm. He quotes verses 8 through 11 and says, Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. This psalm, yeah, it's David through the Holy Spirit. It was David writing this. But the truest way to hear it is it's Jesus saying these words. So I'm going to read Acts 2, 25 through 28, where Peter quotes it. And I would just invite you to listen to these words as if Jesus is saying them. He says, for David says concerning Jesus, concerning him, and, and him is Jesus. So it's like Jesus is talking. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is a psalm of Jesus. David, as much as he wanted this to be true of him, He was an imperfect human being. It was not always true of him. He wanted, it was his desire to set the Lord always before him. But in reality, he couldn't always do that. For Jesus, this psalm is true. It is completely true. Jesus always set the Lord before him. His heart was always glad. His tongue rejoiced. And what David could only imagine when when he says, man, I, I know you're with me through this life, and when I die, I know you won't abandon me. Jesus, it was, he experienced it. He died on Friday. He was in the grave on Saturday, but his father did not abandon him. On Sunday, he raised him from the grave. 
And because Jesus lived this psalm, Jesus fulfilled this psalm, we can live it all the more. The more we read it, the more we pray it, the more real it becomes. So I'd invite you, try it. Try it this week. Take eight minutes, eight short minutes, just to be present with your Father. Our Heavenly Father loves to spend time with us. He loves to give you His undivided attention. So go somewhere where you can be alone with your Father. Maybe you go to your room. Maybe you you can go on your back porch. Maybe you take a walk. Whatever it is, just get alone with your Father and spend some time with Him. Maybe you read through this psalm. Maybe you pray this psalm. Maybe there's something that's just really heavy on you right now and you just have to talk to your Father about it. Just like David, this was really heavy on David and he had to talk to his Father about it. Whatever it is, spend some time with your Father. Because this, I know, is true. We benefit from our ability to be present with our Father more than anything else. And our Father is so good. He loves to spend time with us. He's waiting to spend time with us. Let's pray.